It's a fun morning. Hopefully you, you did some things. If you're a family with kids, did some things for mom this morning. One of my kids is a giver, and she loves to give. I guess that sort of narrows down which one it is. So at 6 in the morning, bless her little heart, she is up ready to give mom the stuff we got for mom. And she wakes me up. When are we going down? I'm like, uh, we're sleeping. Um, and then she just stands next to Susie, waiting for just the slightest moment. That was our morning. That's how we woke up. And she was so excited, though, to do something for mom. And then, then we're up, and I, I over. I was just watching this morning all the things that Susie does for the family. Isn't it amazing what moms do and the sacrifices and all the little things? One of my other ones comes running in, and, and Susie, as he runs in, says, Oh, you probably want me to tie your shoes. And he's like, How did you know? <laughs> I'm like, She has superpowers. It, it's okay. She has mom's superpowers. And he, he wouldn't quite believe me. But hey, you know, it's, it's Mother's Day. And we've been talking about spiritual gifts and divine enablement. So I wanted to start by talking about mom's superpowers might seem like a little bit of a stretch, but moms have special abilities that God has built into them to be moms, right? Just by way of introduction, I found a list of ten superpowers that moms have. The first, they have superhuman hearing. They hear everything. Often ripped from the dead of sleep, you can find mom jumping out of bed at the sound of every toss, faint cough, and irregular breath. From 10,000 yards, she can determine from a single cry whether her child is hurt, sick, hungry, tired, or just faking. (laughs) There's truth here. Second one, an I spy ability. Supermoms see everything. Like Santa, she sees you when you're sleeping and she knows when you're awake. She has eyes in the back of her head and knows everything that goes on. Number three, she's a multitasking marvel. Supermoms have the ability to do it all and then some. Cook dinner, quiz spelling words, fold of laundry all at once, no problem. Number four, I like this one. They have a built-in dishonesty detector. Moms are no fools. With a squinty side eye, Supermom's dishonesty detector lets her know when she's being told the truth and when she isn't. There's no getting away with anything. They have innate intuition. Leave it to Supermom to know when something isn't just quite right. She has a feeling, a sense, a knowing that can only come from being a woman who cares the most and invests so much in her family. Number six, death stare. <laughs> I heard groans on that one. Every Supermom has perfected the death stare as a silent indicator to her brood to knock off whatever naughtiness they're currently engaged in. The death stare is serious business that carries even more serious consequences. Some of you moms have already used it this morning. I know. Seven, moms have an ability to be hug healers. Supermom may not have gone to medical school, but her hugs are the antidote for every physical and emotional human suffering. Whether it's a skin, knee, hurt feeling, or just plain old bad day, Supermom has what it takes to right the world's wrongs and turn that frown upside down. She's a miraculous supplier. She is primed and ready for all potential eventualities and is equipped with wipes, band-aids, snacks, Motrin, books, toys, bibs, Play-Doh, markers, more snacks, sparkles, glue sticks, more snacks, tiara, scrunchies, and not forgetting spare undies and socks. 
Moms, you ever feel like that? I am amazed at how moms know what, what families need. Number nine, moms have the gift of being master finders. When there's only seconds remaining and it's all on the line, you can count on mom to find that missing shoe, beloved stuffy, or math homework without breaking a sweat. Now, the secret is it's not so much science as it is just following the trail of stuff you left behind. (laughs) And finally, ten, a sick sense. Try as kids might to play the sick card to stay home from school, super mom ain't buying it. She can tell when one of her kids is sick just by looking into their eyes. And if she really wants to get technical about it, check on the forehead always seems to do the trick. But listen up, kids. If you really want in on mom's kryptonite, just know that her immense love for you might just earn you a special love day. Her immense love for you might just earn you a special love day. You know, my kids know that all those things are true of their mom. They've never expressed it. What they express, I know mom loves me. I know mom loves me. And so the, the picture there, I'm a mom, what's your superpower? The heart in the middle is, is really the source of what they do, the source of their sacrifice. And when we think of moms, when we honor moms today, one of the things that comes to mind is this sacrificial love. These, these, these gifts, these things that moms do for their families, but because they love their family. In fact, if a mom didn't love their family and did all those things, could you tell? What, what would it look like if a mom had no love for her family and hated her family? Would she do those things? Now, isn't that even hard to fathom? Because we can't picture a mom not loving her family. But she does all those things because she loves her family. Because of the love God has given. Probably wondering, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? What does this have to do with where we're going? The point that we just made is, is really the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13. He's been talking about spiritual gifts, divine abilities that God gives every Christian in every church so that the church can function, so that it can show the power of the Holy Spirit, that it can build each other up. But Paul now comes to a point where he's addressing the church at Corinth and he knows that they're abusing it. See, when we have the ability to do something, the abuse is often pride. We can be full of ourselves and we can think, oh yeah, I can do anything. And and we can draw attention to ourselves. And so he comes back to this issue of love, this issue of motivation. If you don't have love, then all of the gifts that you use are meaningless. It means nothing without love. And so right in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14 on spiritual gifts, we have chapter 13, which is arguably one of the most beautiful hymns that we have on love in Scripture. But it's not an accident that it's there. It's not an accident that Paul... Just Oh, I I just think this would be a really cool chapter to include here. He intentionally has it in the middle of how a church family responds to each other, how we use our gifts, because he's saying this is the foundational principle. This is the key ingredient. Without love, it really doesn't matter how you use your gifts. And so whereas so many times we use this chapter in weddings, I've used it in premarital counseling and marriage counseling, and and rightfully so because it does explain what love is, the context here isn't this ooey-gooey, wishy, or not wishy-washy, love isn't wishy-washy, but ooey-gooey, feeling-oriented love. This is how we should treat each other, how every believer should treat each other. And it's a choice of self-sacrifice to put others before ourselves. And so we come to this chapter today 
And it answers questions like, how should we treat each other? What does genuine community look like in God's church? How do we get past weaknesses of each other? How do we get past annoyances that we have each other? And this chapter answers those questions for his church. And I think it's just very appropriate to, to look at this chapter on Mother's Day because I think, moms, you're a great example of how to do this for the church. The sacrifice that you give your family because you love them is a great example, not just for other moms, but how we should treat every person in the church, how we should all treat each other. And so we come to this beautiful exposition of love, love that is true and genuine, an unconditional, covenant, selfless love. This is the quality we see at the cross. It's a love lavished on us whether we're worthy or not. And in fact, Jesus loved us while we were still sinners because we are not worthy. It reflects the very nature of God. And so this morning, let's open up to 1 Corinthians 13. We call it the love chapter, but it's really the, the, the church body chapter. How do we incorporate this necessary ingredient in our lives? Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll actually start by grabbing the, the last sentence before 13. The last sentence of verse 31 in chapter 12. Paul's just been talking about gifts and he says, and I will still show you, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And so Paul's been talking about what gifts they should have, shouldn't have, or, or how they should approach them. And he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And he's not talking like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for some of you that remember that. He's talking about a way of life. How should we approach life? And he's saying, this is a foundation. Love isn't just a, a separate gift. This is a foundation and an approach to using all the gifts. And then we come to chapter 13. And throughout the chapter, he's just going to make three points. And the first point that he's going to make in verses 1 through 3 is that ministry without love is empty and worthless. Ministry without love is empty and worthless. And so he begins by, by using some hypotheticals and saying, okay, what if love was absent in the church? What if we did minister to each other and could care less about each other? And so verses 1 through 3 give us that answer. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And in three statements here, the three verses that we have, Paul gives us an understanding that the, the necessary ingredient must be love in how we come to, to community together, how we use our gifts. Without love, in verse 1, he says, my ministry is empty noise. So we see that effective godly ministry must come from love. And if you look at verse 1 there, he begins by talking about the gift of tongues. And it's a gift, it's actually the last gift that he mentioned in 12. It's the one that the church at Corinth was elevating above all others. Oh, we've got to do this to look really good in front of everyone else. So Paul says, well, let's start there. Let, let's start with the one that you think is the most important. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The gong was just, they, they were famous in Corinth for their use of bronze, and so they would just take these big bronze pieces 
and that would be their gong, and they would fashion it into a way where they could hit it. And you, you've heard a gong, right? We, Jeremiah? Okay, something like that. That's a nice sounding gong. They wouldn't have had something like that. You know, symbols we, we have, and sorry to our drummers out there, um, we have symbols. And imagine if the entire time I'm preaching, this was going on. How would you be feeling? Irritated, right? Would you get anything out of it? No, because it would just irritate you. Now, now, interestingly enough, in Corinth, one of the traditions with some of the cults and with some of the temples, their worship would be to take cymbals and gongs and just in the revelry beat on them. And that was just part of the celebration to these pagan deities. And I think that's actually really important in understanding the verse. Because Paul's saying, you can take what you think is your most important gift, and if you're not doing it out of love for each other, it is no better than pagan worship. Think about that. Because practically what he's saying, if I come and I exercise my gifts and I do my ministry here at Village, and it's devoid of love, I might as well be, be worshiping at a pagan temple. That's sobering. That's serious. I, I, as I was going through the week, and especially on this section, I'm like, okay, I don't want to overstate this section. Really, can I say ministry is worthless without love? But, but the wording here in all three verses is nothing, nothing. I am empty. And, and, and Paul is saying it is worthless. It is devoid of effectiveness. So he says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, to put on the practice of love, to put love into my life, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Like the pagan rituals, as Joe said, irritating. Because if someone practices a ministry without love and they do that over and over and over again, doesn't it just grate on you? It is hard to see. And the people they're ministering to, you know when someone is, is motivated by love or if they're just motivated out of duty. And one actually makes a huge difference. The other is just irritating. And so Paul in verse 1 is saying, effective godly ministry must come from love. The best words are just empty, worthless noise without love. Verse 2, he goes on to say, true worth comes from love. Because he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and he, he fits four more spiritual gifts there, and the gift of prophecy and the gift of, of understanding God's mystery, wisdom or knowledge, or wisdom, and then knowledge next. And if I have all faith, then he's re, so as to remove mountains. And he's referring to um, a faith that, that in prayer sees miracles happen, not a saving faith, the gift of faith. He says, if I have all of these great, incredible things, but have not love, and the phrase he uses is, I am nothing. Not just, oh, it's, it's not effective. I am nothing. And it's a statement of worth. It's a statement of, of value. And he's saying if, if it's not based in love, it's nothing. And he chooses these four incredible gifts and he uses words like all and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith. And we know that no one even with those gifts exercises it completely in the perfect. And so he's basically saying even if you're Superman with your spiritual gifts, even if you're the best ministry person in the church, if, if you don't have love, you're not important. 
you're nothing. And that's sobering. And then finally in verse 3, he says, personal sacrifice and giving only has value if done in love. And he uses two, uh, two more examples. If I give away all I have, and we know in the early church they would sell everything they have and give to the church to help the poor. And we saw a rich young ruler that couldn't do this and, and so couldn't give his life to God. We saw Ananias and Sapphira in Acts who tried to pretend to do this and fool God and fool the church for the glory. And, and, and they were struck dead. But we see, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, I gain nothing. And so he uses examples of the greatest sacrifice that we can think of. The, the, the greatest sacrifice of giving everything I have to martyrdom, giving my very life. Some of your translations say give, give your life in flame. Some of it says give your life so that you can boast. Scholars are about 50-50 on which one's accurate, but really the thrust is the same. If you're looking for attention or looking for glory by how you give your life, but if it's not done in love, it's nothing. It gains nothing. And so when we look at the first point Paul is making here, he's saying ministry without love is empty and worthless. And in case we don't get it, he gives us three examples with gifts. And so our takeaway from that is, as as we come on Sundays, as we come on Wednesdays, as we minister to the body, we need to ask the question, why am I doing it? What's my motivation? And, And challenge ourselves, I am to be motivated because I love you. Because I love the other people that are here. And we've got to not be afraid of the word love. Because it's sacrificing for the good of each other, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. And, and now I'm not saying that if you wake up and like, I don't feel very loving today, I'm just going to skip out on ministry. That's not what I'm saying. Because we have responsibility. The answer is to say, God, I'm sorry. I know I should be loving. Help me love today. That's the correct response. See, we can tell when someone isn't ministering in love. It looks like duty. It looks cold. It, it is a person that will make decisions on the basis of self rather than what would help others. Those are things that help us understand what is our motivation. See, when love drives the use of gifts, they become expressions of God. His presence. His grace rather than just simply exhibitions of power. Remember Jesus when He was approached by the Pharisees and said, what are the two greatest commandments? Do you remember what He said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we talked about this morning, quoting Deuteronomy 6. Remember the second one He said? Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on all these hang the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. That's what should be on our minds as we come together. Let's not just play Christianity. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's minister because we love each other, because we're choosing to love each other. Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, had an interesting quote. We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And I think that points to an interesting truth that if I'm not walking in love with God, if I'm treating this as just religion, as just something I come on Sunday and get out of the way, it's going to be harder to love each other. 
But if I'm in right relationship with God, if I'm in love with my Savior, if I'm letting Him change my life, I can't help but love you. Because I become a conduit for His love. And that, that brings us to Paul's next point because it's like, okay, what does love look like? I, I've said that love is so important, but what does it look like? And in verses 4-7, through seven, Paul is going to describe love in an incredible list of 15 verbs. And point number two there is love is an unworldly decision to act for the good of others rather than self. Love is an unworldly decision to act for the good of others rather than self. And unworldly might seem like a weird word to use there. I'm sort of playing off our theme, godly living in an ungodly world. But but how can we have genuine love for each other, genuine love that lasts without experiencing God's love? See, true love in the body of Christ is unworldly. It's not about just what we think of as love on TV or in the movies. It's about, this is how God loved me, so this is how I'm going to love you. It's moms what I believe makes you great moms. This is how God loves me, so this is how I'm going to love my family. And you're great examples of of that. And so we come to to this passage, love is patient in verse 4, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What an incredible definition of love. And we need that, don't we? We have all kinds of ways we use love. I can say, I love my wife, and you know what I'm talking about, right? I love my kids, and it's a little different, but you know what I'm talking about. I love the Dodgers. Okay, ignore the team name. (laughs) Team name wasn't my point. Do I love a sports team differently than how I love my wife? I hope so. My wife hopes so. It's a whole different understanding. I can say I love pizza. That's different than how I love my wife. Do you see what I mean? We use love in all these different ways. I love sleep. Sometimes. I love the mountains. Okay, so that's even yet another way of love. A place I like to go. Something I enjoy. We love God. Hopefully by giving ourselves completely to Him. And so we have these words for love, but, but so Paul wants to make very clear here what kind of love he's talking about. And so he describes it, and he describes it with 15 verbs. It's important that they're verbs. Because what, what is a verb in a figure of speech? What's, it's action. And so all 15 of these in the Greek are action words because love is a choice to an action. In the world, what do we often think of as love? It's a feeling, right? A noun. I, I feel love. And so we wait to, to feel love, to show love to somebody. And that's completely backwards biblically. We show love and then the feelings will follow. Feelings and emotions of love aren't bad. They're awesome but they aren't the only part of love. And we get this mixed up because our culture has gotten this mixed up. And we've equated love with lust and we've equated love with feelings. Love is an unworldly decision to act for the good of others rather than self. How do we love each other? 
How do we use that word in the body of Christ? Sometimes I think we use it like I love pizza. I love you if I enjoy being around you. I love you if you're contributing something to my life. But in reality, for each other, we should use it like we do of God or of our spouses. I love you no matter what. No matter what. And that creates the kind of church and the kind of community that God smiles at. So let's look at these, these verbs. The, the, all of these things are actually behavioral, not sentimental. And so this is a selfless act of sacrifice. But as we go through this, I'd like you to think, instead of how, whatever we think of a love, I want you to think of the people in this building right now. If you need to, look across the aisle. The people of the light can look at the people of the word. Sorry, that's sort of, there's all these debates of which side of the sanctuary is better. Look across the aisle and say, these are the people that God is asking me to love in this way. And so let's get past thinking of this as just about marriage and think of this as about the church. First thing Paul says is love is patient. And I'll go through these pretty quickly. Each of them could warrant their own message. But love is patient. It's the opposite of short-tempered. And the wording here is patient with people rather than circumstances. There's other words that are more for trials. This is love is patient with people. Quite frankly, annoying people sometimes. It's the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate and to still have a good attitude and not complain about it. Something to think of is patience is not indifference. Sometimes we think of patience as just, I'm just going to sit here, tolerate what you do. Patience is not indifference. Patience is still actively loving them. It's a verb. Despite what may be happening. Praise God that He is patient with us. In 2 Peter 3.9, Romans 2.4, and a number of passages, we see that because God is patient with us, He didn't just strike us dead the first time we sinned. But instead, how did His patience show? Was it indifference? No, his patience was, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for your sins because I love you. And I'm going to wait and be patient and give you a chance to come to me. That's the patience we're to have for each other. See, all of these are actually rooted in the character of God, of who God is. Second thing Paul says is love is kind. And this is, kind is is not just, I, I love happy talking about nice and the difference between kind and nice. It's not just being nice to each other. Kindness here is, is to be kind, to be loving, to be merciful. It's related with the word for good. To do what is good for another. To serve someone else. That's being kind to them. I think of Ephesians 4.32 where, where Paul to the church at Ephesus sort of defines what kindness is. He says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So kindness is tender-hearted. It's forgiving. It's seeking the good of another. But it's a verb. Then Paul drops into a series of eight things that love is not, just to make it clear. And, and if, you, if you look at these, you can actually tie almost every one of these back to another section of 1 Corinthians. He's addressing some of the downfalls of the church, some of the struggles of the church. He says, love does not envy. And and all of these, by the way, say love doesn't center on self. 
The love does not envy. The idea of strongly desiring something of another that, that, that someone else has or the success of another. Intense negative feelings about the success or achievements of another. The church at Corinth was struggling with that. It was causing divisions. They were elevating themselves above each other and wanting the gifts other people had and all kinds of stuff was happening. Love doesn't do that. Love celebrates the success of each other. Love wants the best for each other, not the best for me. Second thing, love does not boast. The the Greek word for boast there is windbag. (laughs) Love is not a windbag. It's the idea of constantly telling each other how great I am. We we know what this is, right? And, And it's a desire for adoration from another. And so I'm going to tell you how good I am or what I've done or what I've accomplished so I can have that adoration. It's heaping praise on self. Love doesn't do that because where's the focus? Me. Love's focus is on you, on others, is outward. Next word goes with it is not arrogant. So if boasting is desiring adoration from others, arrogant is just adoring self. I just love myself. I'm better than you. I'm really great. Right? That's arrogant. We sometimes call this conceited. We sometimes it's translated pride. But it's the idea of puffing up, thinking I am better than I am. Remember in 1 Corinthians 8.1, the beginning of the talk on gray areas, Paul says knowledge puffs up. But do you remember the second part of that? Love builds up. So knowledge, the, the, the danger of knowledge is I can think highly of myself. It can puff me up. But love builds up. It builds others up. Is it about me? Is it about others? Next one, love is not rude. Some of you moms today are like, yeah, preach that one. <laughs> the word for rude there is, is shameful behavior. Love does not act shamefully around other people. It's sensitive to, to other people's sensibilities and acts accordingly to that. It doesn't act disgracefully or dishonorably or indecent. See, when we're rude, we're not really considering others. We're just doing what we feel. Just doing what we want. That's not love. Paul goes on, the fifth one in the list of things that love is not. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not self-seeking. It is not selfish. Because our, our tendency, our natural man wants to put oneself first. Wants to have it my way. And, and things should be done exactly how I think they should be done. One of the ways that it often shows itself is, is when we're concerned about our rights. You have violated my rights. I have a right to do that. That's all self-seeking. None of that is love. Paul, chapter 10, 33 of 1 Corinthians says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. And that's an example. If I'm not seeking my own way, I'm I'm, I'm looking out for others that I can share the Gospel with them. Next one, love is not irritable. The idea is not easily angered or touchy. I think touchy should be a good word. I don't know that I've seen a translation that uses touchy, though. Love isn't touchy. When you think of a touchy person, what what do you think of? Or an irritable person? Every little thing just sets them off, right? 
You walk on eggshells because you're just never sure what's going to just cause them to explode. Well, love isn't irritable. Because when I'm irritable, why am I irritable? I'm not getting things the way I want. Things aren't perfect for me. And so Paul says love isn't irritable. Spiritual love that can only come from God that is unworldly here isn't irritable. Now there may be a time to be angry at sin. We know Jesus, while not irritable, He did show anger at times. But that wasn't this quick, impulsive reaction to not getting His way. It was that sin. Next one, love is not resentful. Some of your translation says it keeps no record of wrongs. And the word there is like an accounting book, a ledger that you keep track when somebody has wronged you so that way you know just how much you have to do to get them back. Feels good, right? We, we, it appeals to our innate sense of fairness. If someone does something to me, I'm going to remember it and get them back. The problem is that's not love because it's not forgiving. It's not from God. Praise God, He doesn't hold our wrongs against us. Because of the blood of Christ, they are paid for. The ledger is clean. If I come to Him and repent of my sins, that is done. And we're to offer people that other that same forgiveness. Back to Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I, I, I knew a guy once that had a little black notebook. And every time someone would say something that offended him, he'd write it down. Or, or, or not visit or not do what he thought. And, and I can remember seeing it come out and I'm like, oh no, what did I do? That's keeping record of wrongs. It did not make him a very loving person. Because when we dwell on other people's wrongs, there is no way to love each other. It's not love. We need to see each other as forgiven saints, children of God. Last one in the, the section of, of negatives. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It takes no joy in evil of any kind. Not only doesn't participate in it, but doesn't find it entertaining, doesn't find it appealing at all. But rather, and he gives the alternative to this one, but rather rejoices with the truth. See, love enjoys God's truth. Enjoys God's way. It enjoys the Gospel and who God is. And when we are just so enraptured with who God is and what He wants and how He's made things to be, evil's pretty disgusting. And so love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices in truth. All of these words remind us that love is concerned to give self rather than assert self. And then he ends with four more descriptions of love back to the positive. And and all of these have the word all with it. And so these are, are really broad summary statements that give us a beautiful picture of what love should be in the church of God. What love should be for the person across the aisle. He starts with bears all things. Some of your translations say protects. And and the word really incorporates both of those. One of the great things to do if you're wondering what words mean, 
You don't have to go out and learn Greek. What you can do is take about three or four good translations. You read in all of them, and you'll usually get the, the idea of what the Greek means just by three or four translations. Pretty easy to do in your own study. And in this case, bears all things is, is used sometimes. Protects is used sometimes. And, and the word comes from put a roof over somebody. Put a covering over somebody. And, and it's the idea of even when somebody isn't perfect, and guess what? None of us are. Even when somebody isn't perfect, I'm willing to come alongside and help them rather than kick them to the side. I'm willing to put a covering over them and protect them from not from the consequences of that sin, but from ongoing sin and living that way because I'm willing to help them change. And so we endure some things that annoy us. We endure some things that, that just are hard to get past for the sake of helping that person walk with God. To take on their burdens. 1 Peter 4.8 talks about a, a, the similar concept. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There might be things with each other, a statement that hurts that we choose to ignore because we're covering that sin and we're looking past that to, the, to, to who that person really is and helping them grow. The opposite of that is I'm waiting with a hammer over your head and anything you do that troubles me, I'm going to whack you. Got a hammer here. It's not love. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. And the word for belief there is of faith or of trust. And this is the idea of we give each other the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean that we're gullible and we believe every little thing. Hey, the world's flat. I don't know if you knew that. No, it doesn't mean we're gullible. It means that we give each other the benefit of the doubt. That even when we blow it, we're willing to still trust. We're willing to believe in you. See, a critical spirit jumps to thinking the worst every time something happens. Love says, I believe we can overcome this. Two more, love hopes all things. It's forward-looking. Even when a person fails, failure is not final. Because this world is not final. And God can use us. He can change us. He can forgive us. And so love hopes and sees what God can do in someone's life. And the last one there is love endures all things. There's a steadfastness. Never give up is what some say this means. They say, I won't give up on you. I'm going to pursue you and love you and love you and love you no matter what. It's an active positiveness. That's my made-up word for the day. An active positiveness, not just stoic acceptance of each other. It's a soldier that keeps his spirit up even though the battle continues to rage and he doesn't see an end in sight. Love endures all things. What a list, huh? Fifteen things. Not just for a husband and wife, but for me to you, you to me, for, for across the aisle to every person in this room. What would a church look like if those 15 things are exactly how we treated every other person in the church? Wouldn't that be pretty incredible? That would draw people to Christ. That would scream, this is God and the Gospel making a difference in His church. 
And that's why Paul interrupts how ministry happens by saying this is the most important ingredient. But remember, 15 verbs. It's a choice. It's an action. We don't wait till we feel like loving each other to act like we love each other. Moms, imagine your child throws up in the middle of the night. I would bet every mom in here has had that happen. Do you feel joy and like you just can't wait to get up at that point? No. Why do you? Because you love that child. Unconditionally. And you're willing to serve them rather than your own need for sleep. Thank you. Those are the kinds of examples mom set for us. Just a couple of thoughts out of this section. If love is the essential ingredient, if it's as important as Paul says it is, which is inspired by the Holy, by, by, by the Holy Spirit, and so this is the very Word of God, then these 15 things become part of our qualifications for ministry at Village. Right? If these are essential, and they're essential to using our spiritual gifts, then we should pay attention to these when we think about coming into ministry and people coming into ministry. When we think about coming to do ministry. See, these are how we allow Jesus' love to flow through us to others. And in fact, I would, I would argue, like I've said, the only way we can really do these things because they're unworldly is if we've experienced the love of God. But I'd like you to look at that list one more time and, and do something that has just stepped on my toes this week and stomped on my feet and torn the legs out from under me. What if you read it and instead of love, you put your name in? Just, just I'll read it with my name. You read it in your head with your name. Ron is patient and kind. Ron does not envy or boast. Ron is not arrogant or rude. Ron does not assist on his own way. Ron is not irritable or resentful. Ron does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Ron bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And tears come to my eyes because I can't read that honestly. I'm not always all those things. But doesn't that bring the passage home? That's how we read this passage. Need to read this passage. Love might be something out there that we're not sure about, but when we put our name in, we see this is what God wants me to do. Am I doing this? Challenge you this week. Do that several times. Read if you if if you could read these three verses, four verses every day, and put your name in and say, God, help me be like this. Just see what God does this. Last concept. We we finish out the chapter. Spiritual gifts have an expiration date, but love does not. Spiritual gifts have an expiration date, but love does not. And this is Paul, part of Paul's argument of why love is superior. Why love is the essential ingredient. Love outlasts all spiritual gifts into eternity. And we read starting at verse 8, and, and love never ends. Sometimes we include that as, as one of the um, 
descriptions of love, and it is, but actually Paul is using that to, as his next thought. Love never ends or it never falls. It, 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 it lasts. As for prophecies, and he's talking the spiritual gift of prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, another spiritual gift, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And he, he picks three of the gifts that the, the Corinthian church was elevating, but they are indicative of all the gifts. And Paul is saying the gifts will cease eventually. I mean, think about it. Do you want to hear me, me expound God's Word when Jesus is over there that you can talk to? No, there's no need for, for me to preach or, or use the gift of prophecy if you could go talk to Jesus. Isn't that cool? You know, someone may have a, a gift of knowledge and being able to, to tear into Scripture and, and to, to share that with others, which is a wonderful gift. But in heaven, we don't need it because we have direct access. And we can think about that for all the gifts. Mercy, the gift of mercy. Well, in heaven where there's no tears and no pain, you're not going to be comforting someone. These are essential gifts for here in this age. So he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't even fully exercise them here. But when the perfect comes, and the question is, what is the perfect? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he'll go on to explain it. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And he's just using this as an example of while we are here and we don't have face-to-face communion with God, we're, we're still immature. We're still growing. We're still learning. But then, and I love this verse, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. And that's how we know He's talking about when we're with Christ in eternity. That's the timing of this. The perfect is is when we are with Christ. But then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. I love that that statement. Because God is going to know me so deeply and He still loves me. And He still pursued me. And He still rescued me. And so Paul is saying, there's a time coming when we're in eternity with Jesus Christ. We won't be needing to exercise these gifts. But love will not fail. We will still be loving each other. We will still be loving God Almighty. Love will not end. The gifts will when we're present with God. When we have that knowing relationship with God. I love even the description of the mirror. For them, they didn't have mirrors like we do. You looked at the mirror this morning and you probably saw a pretty good reflection of who you were. Pretty accurate. For them, it was polished metal. And I think of California State Parks. Have you guys been to California State Parks? The restrooms there. And there are these stainless steel metal sheets. And after about a year, you're like, I think that's me. You polish it a little bit to try to at least make sure your hair's not sticking straight up. It's it's a dim reflection, a poor reflection. But in eternity, we're going to be face to face with God. We're going to be loving God. That's exciting. And so Paul wraps it all up in in 13. So now, a, a statement of conclusion. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. And he takes the triad of Christian virtues and 
And actually, we already saw faith and hope in the, in the description of love. Love believes all things or, or trusts faith. Love hopes all things. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so Paul brings them back to what matters. The essential ingredient isn't to have some showy spiritual gift. The essential ingredient is that we love every person in this room. That's what God wants for His church. And I pray that we can follow Mom's example and love in that kind of sacrificial way. In that kind of attitude that is willing to put others so completely above ourselves that then we're ready to serve each other and minister to each other. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, thank You for loving us. Lord, that even while I was dead in my sins, in rebellion against You, You still loved me and pursued me and sent Your Son to die in my place to take the penalty for my sins so that I could live, so that I could look forward to seeing You face to face. Man, I'm looking forward to that, God. Thank You for that kind of love. Lord, help us to come to Your church body, to come to, to each one here with that kind of sacrificial love. Help us to take these 15 things and say, that's how I'm going to treat every person at Village. Lord, change our focus from what we do to who we love. And Lord, then help us minister in incredible ways because of that love. Challenge us with this, God. Reveal self-centeredness in us, no matter how much it hurts. Strip away the layers of self-protection and help us love one another. Thank You for this incredible chapter, God. Thank You for the moms You've given us for the moms that love so often with this kind of sacrificial love that, that really defies understanding. A love like only a mom can have is a phrase we use, but that, that means something. Lord, help us to learn from moms, learn from their example, and apply that same love to each other. Lord, I pray for our moms here that today is special, but that every day is a day of renewing from spending time in Your Word Lord, fill their cups as they give so much. Renew their strength every morning with your new mercies, with your love. Thank you for our moms. In Jesus' name.